If you'd like to open your Bible, we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the Church Bible, that's page 310, and in the large print, 477. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to read the first 17 verses. The king that's mentioned in verse 1 is King David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is God's word. And the passage we have just read is one of the most important passages in the Bible. If we had to come up with the ten most important or even the five most important this passage would make the list. But at first glance, 
Maybe we have to be honest and say, well, I'm not sure why this is so important. It doesn't give us any guidance about how to live. There's no advice here about who to marry or whether to marry or how to succeed in life or what to do in difficult situations. This passage doesn't seem to deal with any of the things you and I are most concerned about day to day. So how can it be one of the most important passages in the Bible? Well, the truth is the Bible does deal with the things you and I are most concerned about. But those things are not the Bible's main concern. What the Bible is most interested in is God and his work. The kind of God he is. And the plans he makes. The things he does to make those plans become reality. And so what that means is, if you and I are really going to get the Bible, we have to come to it with this understanding. If we try to read the Bible like a personal horoscope that's going to be all about us, if we read it that way, we are going to get fed up with the Bible pretty quickly. But if we realize the Bible is all about God, it will make much more sense to us. And the beautiful thing is, when we learn about God and his plans, we begin to see how we fit in those plans. And so we end up getting lots of help with the things we face every day. But we have to start with God and his plans. And then we learn plenty about ourselves and our circumstances. So let's give our attention to this passage we've just read and let's see why it's one of the most important passages in the Bible. It is important because it contains the promise, the promise of God. But it doesn't start out with God's promise. It starts with David's desire. He wants to build a house for God. Look again at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. The key word in this passage is the word house. It's used in several different ways. First of all, David uses it to refer to his own royal palace. The word translated palace in the NIV is the same word that's translated house all through the rest of the passage. Chapter 7 opens with David feeling things aren't quite right. He's the king of Israel. He has a new capital city, Jerusalem. And chapter 5 told us David's friend, Hiram king of Tyre, built David a luxury house. Cedar was a sign of luxury. And in chapter 6, David brought the ark of God to Jerusalem. But the ark is in a tent. And that just doesn't seem right. Not while David is in a palace. Now, David knows very well God is not confined to that tent. 
He knows God's throne is in heaven. But still, if the ark is God's footstool, and that's the best way to think of the ark, if it's the place where God's presence touches earth, then David wants to honor God with a better house for the ark. And he doesn't spell out exactly what he's thinking here. But later it becomes clear David wants to replace the tent with a temple. And now seems to be the perfect time. Because God has given David rest from all his enemies. In David's day, it was pretty difficult for kings to do building projects. The reason it was difficult was that there were lots of rival kingdoms all clustered around each other. And a king was usually at war. Either somebody was attacking his kingdom or he was attacking somebody else's. That's how it worked. And so it was very hard to build while you were in the midst of fighting wars all the time. But we're told the Lord has given David a period of rest from all that. And so it seems like a perfect opportunity. A temple has been on David's mind. Now it seems God has cleared the way for David to build a temple. So one night he invites his friend Nathan the prophet over. He settles Nathan down with a coffee and he raises the idea with him. Friend to friend. What do you think about this, Nathan? Well, Nathan decides he doesn't even have to think about it. David recognizes God is more important than the king is. He wants to honor God. So what is there to debate? What objections could there possibly be? Nathan says, go for it, David. The Lord is with you. He will love this. You don't need me. You need an architect. But Nathan spoke too quickly. Just because the plan had God's honor in mind, Nathan assumed it must be the right plan. He didn't stop to ask whether David's plan fit with God's plan. And you and I can fall into exactly the same mistake. We can fall into thinking that as long as our motivation is good, then God will find a way to work our plan into his. And we can easily forget God is not aimless. He's not waiting for you and me to come up with some good ideas he can use. God already figured out the best ideas in eternity past. He made his own perfect plans before creation. And often you and I would be saved a whole lot of frustration if we could live with this in mind. If we did, we'd put more focus on getting ourselves in line with God's plan instead of trying to convince him that our plan's better. Don Carson says, God is really not open to our suggestions about how to run the universe. And that includes our own little private universe. God has plans for that too, for our daily lives, for our relationships, our careers, and the different ways we might serve him. 
We do need to think about all those things. We need to make plans. But then we have to submit those plans to God. That's a bit Nathan doesn't bother with. Submitting our plans to God means laying them out before him in prayer. Asking for his guidance. And then as we move forward, as we have to do, as we move forward with our plans, submitting to God means being open to him altering our plans through circumstances that he brings into our lives. Submitting to God means realizing that just because our plans hit a snag, it doesn't mean God's plans have hit a snag. And the greatest thing about all this is that when God says no to our plans, we can be sure his plan is better. Ten million years from now, none of us are going to be sulking around heaven because God turned down our suggestions. We will be praising him then for turning them down. Because we will see then that what he planned was so much better. Often we can't see it now though. Here and now when we're in the middle of things, we often resent it when God sticks to his own plan. We have trouble admitting he knows better than us. And so often, we think he's messing things up. He's giving us a raw deal. And that's why we need the Bible. Because the Bible shows us again and again, God really does know what he's doing. And what he's doing is good. Here in 2 Samuel, we've seen David's plan. We've seen his desire. But now we see God has something much better in mind. Verses 4 to 17 show us God's promise. A house for David. Nathan finishes his coffee at the palace and he goes home. But he discovers his work isn't done. Because God gives, gives him a message to turn around and take back to David. And first of all, God explains he is the God who will not rest until his people truly rest. David has been thinking it's a negative thing that the the ark is in a tent. But God explains that no, a tent is perfect because a tent is movable. And I'm the kind of God who moves with his people. I travel with my people on their journey. Look again at verse 4. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say... To any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, 
and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. If we can get this point, it will change our whole outlook. Our God is the God who moves with his people. He's the God who chose a tent for himself. Back in the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to make a tent for the ark. It was called the tabernacle. And it was not a case of God making do. He was sending a message about the kind of God he is. He goes with his people. Through the desert, up the mountains, down into the valleys. And here God says, I've never asked for a permanent building because I knew the journey that was ahead of my people. And he says to David, I've been with you too. Wherever you've gone, from those years back as a shepherd out on the hills with the lions and the bears, then through all of those years in exile, on the run from Saul, living in caves in the mountains. And here, God is no longer talking about the ark. David didn't have the ark during all his travels. But God wants him to see the ark in the tabernacle tent was an illustration. The point is not that you need to be close to the tent. The point is, if you belong to God, he goes with you. Look at the tabernacle. And in our case, he'll go home with us this afternoon. He'll go to work with us tomorrow. Into that difficult meeting. At school, he'll go with you into that lesson or the exam that you're so fearful of today. He'll go with you to your hospital appointment. All of them. Whatever it is, as you go, remember, my God is the God who chose a tent. He goes with his people. In the book of Hebrews, God says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. But all of this might raise a question for us. And the question is, didn't we start out this morning saying, God works to his own plan? How does that fit with what God says here about going with his people? Well, it fits because God is leading his people somewhere. In all the places he goes with us, he's not being led by us. He's taking us to where he wants us. Look in the middle of verse 9. After reminding David how he moved with Israel and then moved with David, now God says, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning 
and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The first verse of chapter 7 told us God had given David rest from all his enemies. So has God forgotten that? No, the rest at the beginning of the chapter was a temporary rest. It was just a lull in hostilities. Here, God is talking about permanent rest. Perfect rest. David thought the journey was over. But he's finding out it's a long way from over. David thought God's people already had a home of their own the land of Israel. But here God says he has a greater home in mind. God is saying to David, think bigger. God is pushing the horizon way into the future. It's not time to build a house for me yet. I'm not ready to rest. I'm still on the move. Still leading my people to where I want them. Our God is the God who will not rest until his people truly rest. The end of the Bible describes that future rest as a new Jerusalem. It describes a place so secure from its enemies that its gates are never shut, day or night. That's where God will rest with his people for eternity. And it's a place that's still in the future for us today. And that's why we can say today, God is still the God who goes with his people. He's still not ready to rest. And here, alongside that glimpse into the distant future, God explains how he's going to move his people towards that future. Verse 9 says he will start by making David's name great. And that statement tells us this promise God is making to David is not a new promise. It's an old promise that's being renewed. Way back before there ever was a nation of Israel, God appeared to a man called Abram. And he said this to Abram. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, from Abram came Isaac, then Jacob, And from Jacob's twelve sons came the twelve tribes of Israel. And now, in our passage, God again comes to one man from the tribe of Judah in Israel. And God says, I will make your name great. God didn't make Abram great just for Abram's sake. He made him great for the sake of the whole world. So all peoples could be blessed. And that's why God is making David great. So all peoples will be blessed. 
And the point is, this promise of God is not a new idea. It's the original promise renewed and taken a stage further. Because where the promise to Abraham promised a nation, here God promises a king from that nation. And God says, one of David's house will build a house for God. God is playing with the word house here. David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. But God says, I will build a house for you, David. Meaning a dynasty. A line of rulers who would come from David. And one of that line, God says, will build God's temple. Look again in the middle of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God says, my plans go way beyond your death, David. You're in such a rush to get it all done now, David. But I'm working to a longer scale. My plans are forever. That's the key word in this section. You and I think just like David. We think in months and years and decades. And if we don't see God doing things on that timetable, we get so impatient. But God says to David and to us, don't panic about what's going to happen today or tomorrow. I'm working with forever. And there are stages to this. The promise comes about in stages. If we read on in the Bible, we find that in the short term, David's son Solomon will build a house of sorts for God. It's described in the book of 1 Kings. Solomon was the offspring of David who built the temple in Jerusalem. But that was not the ultimate temple. It didn't bring perfect rest for God's people. Solomon's reign was not forever. And the reason was Solomon wasn't the perfect king. In Solomon's case, God had to do what he promised in verse 14. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Solomon was not faithful to God. And when he died, Israel was split in two. But notice, this punishment of David's offspring, it's not going to wipe out God's promise. When God punishes one of David's offspring, it's going to be discipline. 
the way a good father disciplines his son. It's not a sign of abandonment. It's for the son's good. God says in verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If discipline needs to happen, it's going to be in that context. The context of a loving father-son relationship. David's house is not going to be cut off the way Saul's was. Human failure is not going to mean the failure of God's promise. And the survival of David's house will not be because it was better than Saul's house. It will be because of God's promise to David's house. David's house is going to survive because of God's faithfulness, not the faithfulness of David's offspring. And if we fast forward through the rest of the Old Testament, we find David's offspring did plenty of wrong. And they were disciplined for it. In the end, that meant Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. That wasn't an accident, it was God's discipline. And Israel was taken away into exile. Eventually, some of them did come back. But the glory days of David and Solomon's reign were over. They never came back. And there was no perfect rest for God's people. But then, into that context, come the events of the New Testament. And we find the very first verse of the New Testament announcing Jesus the anointed one, the son of David. The New Testament is all about the descendant of David who came to fulfill this promise. Jesus Christ explained that he came to bring true rest. He said, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus explained that he came to build the true house for God's name. He said, I will build my church. Not a building of bricks and cement, but a temple made of living stones. Men and women made holy, a living house fit for God's Holy Spirit. And Jesus was the true son of God. He was not a son by adoption. He was a son from eternity past. Before Jesus' birth, about a thousand years after David, we find an angel announcing to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And just to make it all clear, when Jesus was baptized, we're told a voice from heaven said, This is my son 
whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Jesus broke that continuous line of wrongdoers in David's offspring. The New Testament assures us Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And so unlike Solomon and unlike every other descendant of David, Jesus did not deserve God's punishment. But we can't avoid the fact that Jesus was punished. He suffered under a rod wielded by man. Ultimately, he was killed by human hands. And so we have to ask, did God mess it all up? When the perfect descendant of David finally came, did God drop the ball and forget his promise? No, the New Testament tells us Jesus was punished so God could fulfill his promise. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, God explained what he was going to do. The prophet Isaiah described a servant of God who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Not for his own wrongdoing. Isaiah looked into the future at the suffering servant and he said the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. God didn't mess anything up. He punished his perfect son so we, the wrongdoers, could be forgiven. So we could be a part of God's living temple, the church. And so we could one day enter God's perfect rest forever. We started by saying <clears throat> the Bible is not like a personal horoscope. The things it tells us don't always seem immediately relevant to us. And that's because the Bible is about God and his plans. But the beauty of it is, when we grasp God's plans, it changes everything for us. It shows us history is actually going somewhere. It's not just cycling around like a wheel, pointlessly. And that means our own lives are going somewhere. And here, we've been shown God's plan in the form of a promise made to the king of Israel about 3,000 years ago. And yet this promise is for us. We are part of all the peoples this promise is aimed at. And we have read on in the book. We know who fulfills this promise. We know Jesus Christ is building God's temple one person at a time. And while that work is going on, we know that he travels with us if we're trusting in him. His spirit is in us. 
He is still the God who tabernacles with his people wherever we go. And he will not rest till we are finally at rest in his presence. That's his promise. So let's not cling too tightly to our own plans. Let's build our lives around God's plan. Let's put our hope in his plan. Of course, we're not always going to understand what he's doing today or tomorrow. But we do know he is traveling with us. And we can trust his promise. He will do what he said. Let's pray. Father, we admit that sometimes we come to your word the wrong way. We want your word to scratch where we are itching today. And so we ask you to help us. Help us to consider your plan. Help us to see beyond where we're itching today. Show us the work you're doing through Jesus is what we really need. And as we see all that, we will praise you. We'll praise you that we can be part of this forever kingdom Jesus is building. We will praise you that we can have peace because your perfect son was punished in our place. We are the wrongdoers, but we can be at rest with you forever. So continue to lead us. Continue to show us the greatness of your plans. Amen. Let's remember that Jesus, who had done no wrong, became a man of sorrows for our sake. Let's sing this together.